you know, the woman is the decision maker. She actually has responsibility for making the decisions. She has the response, you know, it's her responsibility, it's her body, her baby, her experience as a care provider. My only responsibility is to make sure I've shared evidence-based information with her. I haven't coerced her. And then I've supported whatever it is she's decided. I don't have to agree with her. That's not my job. It's not my responsibility. Um, it's hers. Welcome to the Happy Homebirth Podcast, your source for positive natural childbirth stories and your community of support, education, and encouragement in all things homebirth and motherhood. Well, hey there, happy homebirthers. I am currently enjoying all of the newborn snuggles on maternity leave. So I have some encore episodes for you for the next few weeks. Some of these episodes are from the very beginning of the podcast, and I wanted to give them an opportunity to see new life, uh, to re-listen to these oldies but goodies, and I hope that they bring you something new. Enjoy, and I will see you back here after maternity leave. Now, let's talk about today's guest. I am so honored to have Dr. Rachel Reed on the podcast today. Now, Dr. Reed is a midwife, an academic, an author, and international speaker who focuses on childbirth physiology, midwifery practice, and women's rights, and rights, as in rites of passage, which we will be discussing. She has provided midwifery care for many women and has attended births in a wide range of settings and circumstances. Rachel is the author of the award-winning blog Midwife Thinking and the co-host of the Midwives Cauldron podcast. She has published widely in journals and magazines, and her first book, Why Induction Matters, is a popular resource for women and care providers. Her most recent book, Reclaiming Childbirth as a Rite of Passage, Weaving Ancient Wisdom with Modern Knowledge will be published in early 2021. Further information about Dr. Rachel and her work is available at rachel-reed.website, and that's R-A-C-H-E-L-R-E-E-D. And she's just delightful. I know you guys are going to love this episode. I find myself getting sucked into her blog archives for hours at a time. And for today's episode, I decided to ask her about several topics that she covers quite wonderfully there. I think you're going to deeply enjoy it. And with that, let's jump in. Please remember that the opinions of my guest may not necessarily reflect my own and vice versa. And although Dr. Reed is a renowned midwife, continue to see your own doctor, midwife, or if you're like me, your chiropractor. Dr. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on the Happy Home Birth Podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, I'm thrilled to have you. And I know that some of my listeners are going to know your name and be super excited. We've got a lot of midwives that listen in, but for those who are mothers or midwives who haven't heard of you yet, would you mind introducing yourself to the listeners? Yes, um, I am a midwife and I trained in the United Kingdom and now I live in Australia. I'm not a nurse, so I did direct entry midwifery. Um, I've lived in Australia since 2014, so I have worked in my career in hospitals, but actually I've spent more years doing home birth than I have in hospitals, but I've probably attended more births in hospitals because more births kind of, you know, you've got a bigger amount of throughput in hospitals, which is one of the issues. Um, I 
have got a PhD and my PhD was about midwifery practice during birth. Um, and I now am an academic. I'm a senior lecturer in midwifery at a university and I teach and research um, around physiology of birth, women's rights in birth, midwifery practice and how that interrupts or supports birth. Um, and I guess you probably know me from midwife thinking, which I actually started writing a blog as part of procrastination while I was doing my PhD. So I was doing all of this kind of literature reviewing and finding all of this research and should have been writing my thesis, but was actually turning it into blog posts. So that's how it started and it carried on from there. And yeah, that was about 10 years ago now. So I'm midwife thinking in the social media world. And I've just started a podcast with my friend who I trained with in the UK, Katie, Katie James, who's a lactation consultant now living in Switzerland. So we've just started the Midwives Cauldron, which is really us just having a chat about all things birth, breastfeeding, womanhood, motherhood. Oh, I will be, that's amazing. I will be thrilled to put that in the show notes. I know many people are going to want to check that out. And I'd love to know, were you always planning to kind of enter the academic world or were you experiencing midwifery and thought, wow, I, I'd love to be in on this research? How did that happen? No, I never wanted to do research again. I had to do an honours for my Bachelor of Midwifery. It came with an honours. I couldn't just do Bachelor of Midwifery. So I did a little bit of research in that, but not a lot. And it was more like a literature review. And I said I'd never do research again. But having worked in the hospital systems and then in home birth, there was just so much that I couldn't understand why we were doing what we were doing. So then I'd go and find out and do, you know, look at the literature and go, well, this isn't even supported by research evidence. So why are we doing what we're doing? So I kind of headed into academia to try and work out what we were doing, not because I wanted to be an academic. And then I just got kind of <laughs> sucked in. <laughs> I guess it wasn't a plan. So when people say, oh, how, you know, if people want the job I have, I often get people, oh, you know, how should I plan to get there? And it's like, well, don't ask me because I have no idea how I ended up here. <laughs> don't plan it <laughs> just it happens that's amazing well and you are doing magnificent work and there obviously needs to be so much more research in this area so it's amazing that 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 is something that you're passionate about and that's really what I would like to discuss today some of these kind of hot topics some of the things that maybe aren't happening the way that physiologically they should happen or questions that I've noticed many mothers bringing up. So for us to start off, I thought maybe we could start with big babies. The idea of having a big baby, it's terrifying to some mothers. So my question to you would be, do big babies scare you or do they make you think a mother should forgo her desire for a home birth in particular? Well, they don't scare me as a midwife, um, most of the women, particularly home birth um, in Australia, these were well nourished, kind of you know well resourced women because home birth in Australia is not part of the system like it is in the UK. So these women often had big babies, and you know, most of them were four kilos and over. That was normal. So I, I don't think it was a. I'm not scared of them as a, a midwife at all. Um, you know, I've seen women birth big babies without any problem at all. Um, I think part of the problem is just talking about this yesterday, actually, that there's been a huge increase. So I haven't attended a home as a midwife for five years now, have a couple, for a couple of friends 
as a support person. But in that in that five years in Australia, it's, I'm sure it's the same, you know, globally in, in the US. They're they're doing more and more scans and finding out more and more. And often these things are not very helpful. So one of the things they're doing, I've had, I know a couple of women who've recently gone for an ultrasound scan for something unrelated to size, you know, can you check a specific thing? And they come away being told their baby's big, even though the scan can't actually tell you if your baby's big. So now once you've had that label applied, everybody's looking at you as somebody who's carrying a big baby and the woman herself, you know, I guess it's normal when a woman thinks about baby coming out of their body, you kind of, it, it feels nicer to think you're not going to have a huge baby coming through your pelvis and vagina. <laughs> so it's normal for women to get worried about that kind of thing. So we place that label and create that worry. And, you know, big babies are associated with increased chance of tearing and the things that everyone's scared of, but not just big babies by themselves. It's, it's because when they do research on big babies, they mix in all the, all the gestational diabetic babies, the big babies who are, big but they're actually a different shape because of the gestational diabetes so they've got bigger shoulders they're not just genetically big babies they're babies that have been made big through gestational high blood sugar levels so we mix all of them in and then we go oh big babies are a problem and um, when well if we separate them out are they still a problem nobody's really looked at that in depth um so i guess no big babies don't scare me. Um, gestational diabetic big babies can be a bit tricky with their shoulders to come out. Most of the time they come out fine. And, you know, the research evidence and even the guidelines are saying that we shouldn't be inducing labours based on the size of an estimated size of a baby. And yet it still happens. Right. So big babies don't scare me, but what people do about the big baby is scary. And, um, you know, I wrote a blog post about that, that is actually there's some research looking at outcomes for big babies. And it seems to be associated with people knowing that there's a big baby or thinking there's a big baby, not the actual size of the baby. So women who have been told have got a big baby have the outcomes associated with big babies um, you know, perineal tearing and you know, baby taking a longer time to cut, get out and get stuck than women or cesarean sections than women who just suddenly pop out a big baby and nobody expected it. They don't have those same outcomes. So I think it, as with many things in labour and birth, we focus very much on the woman and the baby is the problem. We don't look at what's happening to her as a problem, which actually most of the time it's the outside things that are causing the problem, not the woman. Right. It's the, so you're kind of alluding to the idea of the care providers fear of the big baby is what could be an issue in having, or being told that you have a big baby. Yeah. And I think, you know, as a care provider, I'm really grateful. I didn't actually know, could maybe tell from a palpation, but not really. So you waited till the baby came out to find out it was big. So you didn't have all of that worry. I can remember looking after a woman in hospital who'd been told she had a huge baby and it was a really stressful birth you know I didn't know her and she came in and her notes a big baby and everybody was big baby you know the doctors have to be in the room and the baby's born um, and we, they weren't she gave birth on the toilet um because <laughs> I just didn't notice you know that she was having a baby um and it was the, the baby was a normal size it was actually you know seven pounds so it was kind of normal and yet all of this she was fearful for her whole labor that the baby's going to be huge and if, you know it was just a big thing that didn't need to be included around her birth Right. Oh, that makes so much sense. So it's, it's number one, the care providers. And then number two, just what that does to a mother's anxiety and mm -hmm. the fear that can be built up around something that isn't necessarily an issue anyway. 
So another thing that I wanted to touch on, and you actually already did mention it, was gestational diabetes. You have a blog post about that as well that I found so fascinating. So in that blog post, you mentioned that gestational diabetes is a fairly nonsensical <laughs> um, diagnosis. And you're, I'm not a huge fan of the way in which mothers are tested for this. So would you mind sharing your perspective on this and high blood glucose levels? Yeah. So, um, and the blog post I wrote was really around the label because, mm -hmm. you know, there is, if there is abnormally high blood glucose levels circulating in a woman's blood when she's pregnant, then it does affect the baby. You know, that it changes, it alters how the baby develops um, and has impacts in terms of the birth with the shoulders and respiratory, potential respiratory issues. Most of the time, not even when a woman has gestational diabetes, everything's fine, but it just increases the chance of those things happening. So that is an issue. But, you know, because everything's so risk averse, we now look for blood glucose levels and then label the woman when actually it's not not the label it's what her blood glucose levels are doing for her whole pregnancy. So we do this test at a point in time and the test levels keep changing, you know. So in Australia now, I think it's the same in the US, they're using um, levels that were were set not through evidence, um, and they've lowered it. So we now have around 17% of women in Australia have gestational diabetes. I just, it, oh, surely not. You know, what are we saying? That all of a sudden, all of these women have this. When I was training, it was pretty unusual to look after a woman with gestational diabetes because in the UK, we didn't test for it. So we only tested for it if there were risk factors. So the women we cared for with gestational diabetes really did have it. Um, and it was unusual. Like I, I used to not know what to do. I'd have to get out my textbook and go, oh my God, like what do we do here again? Whereas now pretty much every other woman has it. And it's just another label to then increase surveillance, to divert the care towards further interventions. When really what, what you need to be asking is are the blood glucose levels within normal limits? If they are. So I have a lot of, I know a lot of women who have home births don't want to enter into all of that. So what they'll do is they'll either not do the test or do any testing, or they'll just um, check their own blood glucose levels themselves just to make sure that they're, they're okay. And then just carry on. That's, and I'm a huge proponent of personally for myself. I love the word decline. So <laughs> I would, I would not have, I would have chosen to do the testing perhaps if I had concerns, but Mostly I'm just a decliner, but I also have concerns of, you know, the glucola. That's what, that's what we use in the United States. And I is maybe in that blog post, you mentioned that it's a little bit different in Australia or in the UK, how they're actually testing for this. Yeah. So there's different tests. Um, and I can never remember the name of the one that they do very early on. If there's risk factors they do on early on which doesn't pick up gestational diabetes because that doesn't happen until 20 plus weeks. So they're doing these tests at around 14 weeks. And what those tests do is tell you what blood glucose levels were doing before pregnancy. So they will pick up women. And that has actually been a problem in research um, findings is that they've previously included women in the samples that had diabetes before they got pregnant and didn't know. So all of that kind of um, affects in terms of stillbirth, miscarriage, congenital abnormalities is only 
a, a risk for women who have previously had diabetes before they were pregnant, didn't know they had it, had abnormal blood glucose levels in those really early phases, which is not gestational diabetes. So that test is not really for gestational diabetes. And then the tests for gestational diabetes are usually around a challenge, you know, where you get to you know, have blood, drink something that you would never drink ordinarily in your ordinary life and with sugar in it. And then we see how your body responds. I can tell you now, I don't drink sugary drinks. And I'd probably end up having gestational diabetes if I did that test. Exactly. You're not testing women in their normal natural habitat, which is why, you know, a lot of women decline that test. And if they do want to know what their blood sugars are doing, then they do it themselves around their own meals and what they would normally be having, because that's what their baby's going to be having in pregnancy. They're not going to be drinking sugary drinks regularly. Right. Oh, gosh, it, it makes so much sense. And that the way that it is tested for, I think on mine is what is so frustrating, especially when I know so many home birth moms. I mean, the majority that I've spoken to are, are typically concerned with nutrition and are, you know, minimizing sugar exposure during pregnancy. And so then to be working on health so, so much, and then to get this sugary drink, it's like, well, that's going to be a cluster. That's going to be quite an issue. Um, so yeah, I, I love hearing your perspective on that. Now, another question that I wanted to discuss is another blog post that you had, which is on VBACs and whether or not this is a mountain or a molehill and is having a VBAC as dangerous as the mainstream medical community seems to think that it is. Well, the mainstream medical community think that anything that is statistically very unlikely but has a catastrophic outcome, that's very high risk to them because that's how they assess risk is they don't assess risk that, oh, this is going to happen to 30 percent of women, but it's fairly mild or it's, you know, it's something we don't see because the woman's postnatal and that's when it happens. They focus on that immediate catastrophic, exciting kind of you know, big picture, you can count this, it's very obvious risk. So they're, they're all they're focused on is uterine rupture. And they're actually, the Queensland Health are writing a guideline at the moment that I was reviewing yesterday. So there you go. Um, and they quickly, they quote the statistic in that of 0.5% chance of uterine rupture, which is the general population chance. So it's up to the woman whose uterus it is to decide whether that's high risk for her or not. And that is a generalized risk. So that includes women who are birthing in hospitals, who are having inductions, which increase the chance of uterine rupture. So when you then take that out, you're getting down to 0.2% or round about that. Mm -hmm. So it's actually statistically less than 1% chance. Um, and whether or not that is a risk is up to the woman who's making the decisions because she's the one who has to live with those risks and for some women that's not a significant risk particularly when they compare it to all the more likely things to happen um if they have a cesarean um you know it's a, you've got more chance of losing your uterus through hemorrhaging during a cesarean than you have of having a uterine rupture during VBAC wow. statistically mm -hmm. you've got more much more chance of having a hemorrhage having a cesarean You've also got, you know, you've, there's all these other, it's an operation. So you've got all the risks of an operation. So you, you know, need to compare that with the vaginal birth. Right, right. Pretty, 
pretty small. And it's, I suppose that's what is frustrating on my end is to see that these conversations are, are rarely even, even being had by care providers, at least in the United States. Is that how you're seeing things in Australia as well? Are, are they immediately saying, oh, that's high risk. You know, you, you wouldn't want, you definitely wouldn't want to have a home birth and a VBAC, you know, maybe so, maybe not in the hospital. Yeah. So that, so they're getting, there is, it does seem to be a shift towards supporting VBAC is an option in the hospital, you know, so this, this guideline I was um, looking at yesterday is actually aimed at mothers. And um, so, you know, it's, it's pretty biased, but anyway, that's <laughs> it's probably written. It would be. Um, so there is a push to supporting that. And I think, you know, in hospital settings, certainly in the last few years, there's been like actually quite good support for women choosing to be back if they do it the right way, as in, you know, have the cannulas in, be ready for theater, have a CTG monitor on, all of that stuff. Cause you know, everyone's really scared that this tiny chance of a thing's gonna happen. Um, so there is an increasing um, support in hospital settings. Cause I think they're realizing that it's actually compared to a cesarean section, you know, there's, there's risks either way. Mm-hmm. So there is increasing support, but there's still a lot of fear. Um, home birth, um, I don't know what care providers are saying. I know a lot of women, a lot of the women I cared for chose home birth because they were having a VBAC um, and they didn't want to get into all of that, you know, potential catastrophe type scenario where they're in hospital and everybody's treating them as if they're going to go to theatre. Um, and, I, you know, I certainly know that most private practice midwives will take on women who are planning a birth after a cesarean. And we even have a pathway for doing that as a private practice midwife. In Australia, you just kind of document you've had the conversations that the woman's making that informed decision and then you can support her. So it depends on the care provider and the setting. And again, in hospitals, it depends on the care provider. You know, there's a lot of care providers who just follow flow charts and what you meant to say or coerce women into doing the thing that is the easiest you know, you don't want difficult women. You don't want to support that. But then you also get care providers who really like working with awkward, difficult women who, you know, assert their rights and decline things. Um, you know, I know a lot of midwives who are working in hospital settings who just love it when a woman comes in and says, OK, this is how we're going to do it. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. And you will be doing that. And, you know, it actually offers offers the care provider um, some real kind of framework for their advocacy to advocate for that woman. And it gives you permission to do those things because all you say to people, you know, women have still have a legal right to make decisions is, okay, so this woman doesn't want anybody else in the room. So I'm not going to um, pull the button when the baby's coming out or, you know, this woman is, has declined to have a CTG monitoring. I've documented that. So we're not having one. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is what makes the, especially in the home birth setting, but that's what makes that relationship with a midwife and a client so special is when the client recognizes, all right, well, this is my responsibility. This whole thing, it's mine. So I'm going to let you know that these are the things that I want. And for a midwife to be able to say, oh, okay, I understand that. Now we can have an intimate understanding of one another and a safer relationship, really. Yeah. And it's all around roles and responsibilities. And that's kind of bang on about that quite a lot. Um, you know, the woman is the decision maker. She actually has responsibility for making the decisions. She has the response, you know, it's her responsibility, it's her body, her baby, her experience. As a care provider, my only responsibility is to make sure I've shared 
evidence-based information with her. I haven't coerced her. And then I've supported whatever it is she's decided. I don't have to agree with her. That's not my job. It's not my responsibility. Um, it's hers. So it's like releasing some of that. Um, and that's, I guess, one of the things that we struggle with as care providers because we have, we do get emotionally connected to the women we care for when we provide, particularly with home birth, you get to know their families, you get to know them. And there has to be some kind of boundary around that. So the woman feels that she's not letting you personally down if she's making decisions that she thinks you might not like, or she needs to be know that you have got her back whichever way and that you're not invested in her decision-making. Mm. Right. And what, do you have any recommendations perhaps for any midwives who maybe struggle with that aspect of how to kind of lay out a framework of letting the client know that that is, you know, that is their responsibility and you're not going to, you're not going to offend me whether you decide one way or another. I think those are the conversations you have really early on. And I would have them before we even engage into that. I'm your midwife. I'm going to be a midwife thing is look, this is how I work because some women aren't like that some women actually want you to make all the decisions and to create this you know I always get really worried when someone says oh I want you to be my midwife because you know what I want to have this amazing and they think somehow I'm going to create some amazing birth for them I'm not I'm just going to be a midwife like yeah. <laughs> I'm just a midwife um so you have those conversations before you even step into the relationship with a woman as in because you know there's something the way I work might not fit some women they might want something completely different and when you know other midwives you can say look I think this person would be really good for you so it's about saying this is who I am this is how I work this is what I expect from you and they should be saying the same this is who I am this is what I want and this is what I'd expect from you and if that fits together then you you move on right that makes so much sense and as we continue really all of this kind of ties in. I feel like each question that I've asked has related back to this in some way, and that would be fear around childbirth. So one of the things, I feel like there are kind of two aspects to this. There's the societal fear that has been created. You know, this, oh, birth is scary. It's terrifying. It's an accident waiting to happen. You know, it's it's just scary. And then there's this other side of fear. And you mentioned this in a blog post and it resonated so deeply with me. So would you mind talking to me about your perspective of, of mothers feeling fear during childbirth and, and how you feel about that? Yeah, well, I think I have a slightly different perspective than some people I see. Um, I think fear is an important aspect of birth, always has been, always will be. Um, and if we think about our ancestors, they would have feared birth because they would have known mothers and babies that died. Mm -hmm. Women would have had friends who died of childbirth. And, you know, it wasn't as catastrophic as they say, where everyone was dying all over the place because medicine wasn't there. That wasn't the case. But women did die. So, you know, ancestrally, we have a, a and I kind of I think it's a respect more than a fear, you know, and to some extent, we're kind of losing that. This is a powerful physical rite of passage. And it is so powerful because you're kind of walking on that edge between life and death. That's the, that's the power of the experience experience and the rite of passage and fear because we are humans we can kind of see that you know animals don't it's all hormonally driven and um, we can anticipate that fear so we can bring in things that aren't necessarily helpful and fear of previous experiences other people's things so that kind of can, can it's helpful to work on that in pregnancy and work out what that fear is where it's coming from if it's realistic and um, but in birth there's, a, there's actually a physiological 
and you know it's the same with stress I think we're kind of in this I've just written a book about reclaiming childbirth as a rite of passage which hopefully will be out early next year and it's it's really looking at that as a framework for understanding not just the experience but the physiology and everything else Mm -hmm. Um, and you know cortisol stress we're in a situation where we don't want any discomfort in life so you know we don't want any risk at all so that means even like a really small amount of risk will do all these things even though that increases the risk of other things to reduce it we don't want to feel scared we don't want to feel stressed we don't want to feel rich it's all part of the human picture you know we can't just all be happy skipping through a forest or chilled like forever that's not how humans work with cyclical animals particularly women we kind of cycle through all these different phases and birth takes us through them and and there's physiology to it you know it's cortisol which is like you know the stress hormone that actually prepares the uterus for contractions it prepares the baby's lungs it clean clears out the fluid in the baby's lungs for birth for birth so all of that's happening at the end of pregnancy so you're not so you know when they say oh the baby's too comfortable in there can be almost true if women are too relaxed you know you need a little bit of stress to kind of get the body it's you know use stress which is healthy stress and then in the separation phase of labor which is kind of how i look at it within my framework there's no stages because stages are bullshit so amen thank you (laughs) it's fluid we don't use that language so I, i talk about it as kind of the phases of a rite of passage and mirror it onto um that kind of anthropological perspective so the separation phase which would normally be called in stages the early you know early labor again you've got anxiety and stress because you're anticipating what you're getting contractions you're feeling discomfort and pain and you're going oh this thing's gonna I can very much vividly remember my own beginnings of labor the second time I was at home and I was just like oh my god this again like I remember absolutely (laughs) oh my god what was I thinking that I could do this at home without an epidural you are mad so that's a normal response. And the and the reason that's there is to keep your neocortex functioning because you need to make the decisions about, I need to ring my midwife. I need to get my kids sorted out. I need to do, so you've got the neocortex needs to be functioning in that early phase in order to get you to somewhere that's safe to birth your baby or to get things around you to make you feel safe. So stress works there and a little bit of fear. Now, once you get into the liminal phase, which they call established labor, or the first stage or whatever and um, but it's actually the liminal phase that's where where after separation separations about separating from the external world it's where women go in so then they kind of go into that altered state of consciousness that anyone who's had a physiological birth will know what i'm talking about or has seen one where there's high um, endorphins you kind of look stoned from the outside and you're just in that now that dampens down fear because you're now in that real liminal the woman shouldn't be frightened significantly during that point in labor because that will slow things down that's not normal that needs to be looked at if if there's lots of fear coming up during that liminal phase um you know consistently then that's that's not a normal physiological goings on however the the next phase which is the emergence phase which is where a woman births a baby into the world requires your neocortex to be functioning because you need to move to get the baby through your pelvis. You need a bit of kind of your brain functioning, but more importantly, you need to protect the baby that you're about to birth. Mm-hmm. So, if, you know, looking at evolutionarily wise, we have to clear our neocortex and we're completely stoned and in this altered state. So the way that our body does it is send a huge surge of adrenaline around your system, which 
for most people, they fear it as a feel it as fear. You know, it's a massive war. If anybody's felt adrenaline, your heart rate goes up, you feel frightened. And that's so you then have a woman who's got all of this fear and she's still in this kind of slightly altered state. And the neocortex is functioning, but not as it would be, you know, in everyday life. And that's when you get this really interesting interplay between you know her making absolutely no sense so she now reaches out in back into the external world having been really internal and this is where she's kind of going I can't do it help me like I've had enough um I'm not doing this anymore all these like okay well <laughs> here we <laughs> are <laughs> um and that's the, what we call the transitional phase I've actually got a um honest student who's doing her honors just looking at that phase and she's actually going to use a sample of free birth women because we want to know what happens when there isn't somebody there to do things to you because that's what midwives do we go are you all right and we reassure the woman um because that's what women expect us to do i've tried not to do it and they don't like it <laughs> and <laughs> you told my client right next time <laughs> i'm paying you to be nice to me when i get to that point <laughs> I was saying, I'm helping your physiology um, <laughs> because the theory is that that would build up if nobody placated the woman and then she would actually have the fetal ejection reflex, which is what Michelle O'Donnell talks about, which is a very fast birth after that huge amount of fear. But we go in there and we go, you're all right. And we kind of mess about with it. It's OK, um, because we're humans and women expect us to do that and think we're being nasty if we don't. Um, so fear is an important part, part of bringing the woman back out of liminality and out of that kind of between world back into almost into the kind of real world in order to birth their baby and protect it so it's there's a reason that fear is part of childbirth no I love that I think that even in that blog post you said something like feel the fear and birth anyway (laughs) you know it's it's there it's gonna be there and you're still going to do it yeah, and I think there's, there's it's unfortunate, but there's um, some ideas around you have to get rid of fear in the antenatal period. So there's all this like work on yourself. You've got to do the work and you've got to get rid of the fear and you've got to clear yourself and do, you know, sort out an entire lifetime's worth of crap that you've brought through your, through your life. And you've, you've got to get rid of that and become this like sentient being before you can then birth. And if you don't do that, you're going to mess your birth up. Mm-hmm. which is just you know rubbish like your body will birth your baby whatever's going on in your head or, or your life um that's what you will do so you can either um fight it or you can try and get you know clear some stuff particularly about a previous traumatic birth it can really help to work through that and kind of um release some of your you know the stuff that's going on around that but you don't have to you'll still birth your baby and you don't have to not be scared of birth you can be scared of birth because it'll still happen Mm-hmm. Right. And, and it is, it's such a wild experience. That's, you know, anybody I've always thought, you know, anybody that tells you birth, there's a, there's a way to do it and it's the right way and nothing bad will happen to you and everything will be perfect. It's not possible. We, we don't know. We can set everything up to be as physio- physiologically, you know, helpful and assisting as possible, but you don't ever know what's going to happen. Just like you don't know what's going to happen on a, in, in theater, on a, on an operating table with a cesarean section. We, we don't really know. And birth is wild. Um, so one of the things that I've always thought about is, yeah, there's kind of this duality of fear. There's that 
unnecessary fear that is just society saying, well, birth is awful, you know, it's scary and it's painful. And a lot of times it is more focused around the pain of birth as opposed to, you know, what's going to actually happen. And that is something that sure, we should look at that and, and think about our mindset and how we're kind of dealing with that. But this idea of the reverence, you know, when you were thinking of, when you were talking about, you know, what we're thinking, respect for, for birth, I think reverence, like we should have reverence to this experience. It is you're going from one state of being to another. It's such an intense time. And, and to have reverence to that, of course, it makes sense. Yeah. And, to, and I think that's partly also why we as women struggle with it because we, we, you know, have this neocortex and we like to be in control and we have this sense of control over lots of other aspects of our life. And you have absolutely no control. And I've given up you know, as a midwife, we would like, you know, go, oh, I think, you know, she's going to birth like post date or early or this is going to, you just don't know this. You just have no idea. And, you know, you set out in your car to some woman's home in the middle of the night and you have no idea how it's going to unfold. So from a care provider's perspective, you know, I'm a control freak. So it's really interesting that I end, ended up in this area and it right. is, <laughs> My husband's actually said, I wish I could come to a birth with you because you sound like you're a different person when he hears hormones <laughs> around. <laughs> yeah, so I, think I kind of go into a different, like, I just accept. It's like really interesting. I can't do it in the rest of my life. When I head out to a birth, I just kind of accept that I don't know what's going to happen. What will happen will happen. That I have to just trust that the woman has the capacity um, and I think this is, you know, in my book, I talk about preparation phases, all about building self-trust, the woman building self-trust. And that's not self-trust that, you know, trust birth, because like, you know, birth's natural. Natures can throw curveballs. You know, na- pathology is nature. You know, complications are nature. So natural birth includes all of those things. And, you know, most of us, that's why midwives came around. and We were invited to births early on because we could kind of identify when things were becoming not physiological and do things to try and divert them or avoid that that's that's what the midwife came about for you know we've we've also forgotten that that you know we were invited to birth not to do all of the emotional stuff and this physical support so much well we did during the pushing the baby out bit and historically but the that was the woman's family and other women around her would do all of that work and the midwife would have this role that was very much kind of just on the edges overseeing is what the term that used to be used and you know because she knew physiology and she she would know when okay now this is heading this way we probably need to use this herb or we need to do this technique so that's you know that so then that so midwives were actually invited to birth because of fear of birth or rather reverence for birth and knowing that it could go any which way so there is this real lack of control in birth for the women and the midwives and anybody else who's there we have no idea what's going to happen it's this woman's rites of passage it's going to unfold however it unfolds and we just have to trust that the woman trusts her not birth but she trusts herself to know to connect with intuition and know what's right for her um, and she has the capacity to get through this, whichever which way it takes her. And that as a midwife, I just trust that I have the capacity to manage anything that gets thrown at me at the, at the birth, you know, at a home birth. I can manage a complication. I can like, work with the woman. I can 
that's so it's about trusting and in pregnancy is all about you know instead of trying to get rid of fear how about focusing on nurturing self-trust what is it and that would be different for different women you know for some women nurturing self-trust is about learning everything about the pelvis and how it works and then that allows them to trust it'll work for other women I've looked after women who've just said I don't want to know anything put your pelvis in your bag I'm not interested um I'll just take it as it comes and they, they don't do any you know don't have any different outcomes to the women who know everything about how their body works it's just how what do you need what do you need in order to trust that you can do this and that you can you can birth this baby however it ends up happening that is so incredible and I'm really thrilled to hear about your birth and your birth I'm really thrilled to hear about your book coming out I am going to be purchasing that as soon as it hits shelves are there any other big takeaways from your book in particular that you'd like to to mention now Oh, well, it actually, it's funny you should say birth instead of book because it has been a birth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is, um, it has been very much a very long labor, a post dates pregnancy. <laughs> 44 <laughs> weeker. Yeah, I think I'm uh, just about to move into the emergence phase where I'll be pushing it. So it's uh, with the editor now. So it's kind of heading, it's getting there. Um, no, it's like, it really, it's just my kind of life's work or kind of pulled together which is my and I start with her story because if you don't understand how birth was and how birth has become what it is then you can't really birth in the system without without really understanding that knowledge and you know you can't understand why it is that care providers are so worried about particular things and not other things if you don't understand her story and how birth was before all of that and then how birth came to be how it is so the first chapter is her story and then it moves into legacy which is what's happening now so that's just a kind of overview of maternity services and what what the goal is politically culturally um, and then the next chapter is blood mysteries which is really looking at and at women's rights of passage their bodily rights of passage and how they all fit together and how you know we can learn a lot from you know if you've never had a baby before looking at how your body works during your menstrual cycle can really help you prepare for birth because you know how you respond to progesterone, you know how you respond to estrogen, you know kind of how it makes you feel. And um, so just looking at the blood mysteries and what, you know, women's cycles and our phases of life and how they reflect in the birth rite of passage because childbirth is just one of our rites of passage. Um, and then the next chapter is all about childbirth as a rite of passage and what that actually means and you know, the midwife as a ritual companion and all of that stuff and then the second part of the books that's the first part the second part is just a chapter by chapter going through all of this stuff so preparation and in each chapter um we d- dive deeply into physiology so we follow eve's birth story who's a made-up woman who's birthing without any intervention or without any disturbance without you know she's in she's in no particular time no particular place and that she's just a physiologist who would look at what's happening in her body and her baby in each chapter um, and then we look at rites of passage which is the things that we do around the woman to support her and rights of protection the things that are done to protect mother and baby which are primarily medical and not very evidence-based um, and for each each chapter so we go through preparation separation liminality emergence and then integration and then the final chapter is medical birth rights because 
Some women will have a medical birth, whether they choose to or not choose to. And that birth is still a rite of passage. It doesn't, physiology aligns with um, the rites of passage in terms of the phases, um, but it's not necessary because women, it's a rite of passage, however you birth your baby. You can have no labor in an elective cesarean section. That is your rite of passage into motherhood. And um, you can have a free birth with nobody there and that's your rite of passage. And, you know, so this chapter, medical birth rights was really to look at how can we bring the principles of the rite of passage, which is all about the whole underlying message that we need to be transmitting to women as they go through their rite of passage is that they are the expert in their body and their baby. Um, and that, you know, they are central. They are the experience and they are central. So even with medical birth rights, how can we enact them to ensure the woman remains central and that she is the decision maker and that she leads the care? You know, we talk about leading care, care providers leading care. The woman leads the care. The, she decides what she wants of the care provider. The care provider goes, okay, these are the things I offer. And in some cases, these are the things I recommend. You know, if you've got preeclampsia and you're ill, I'm going to recommend that you have an induction of labor. You can still decline, but that's my recommendation. So, so this final chapter is all about that stuff. So that's the book in a nutshell. And it is all of my blog stuff, my PhD, my, so I think that's why I'm finding it hard to birth. Unlike the other book, which was induction of labor, which like is like the topic is, it's interesting. I've, en I've ended up being like this induction of labor person. And it's like, cause I was asked to write that book, <laughs> but it doesn't, it's not my heart. This book is like, this is like my baby. Oh, everything that I read, I find myself just nodding my head. <laughs> yes. Yes. Dr. Rachel's got it. <laughs> So thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Dr. Rachel. It was an absolute honor to have you. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been lovely. Even though it's early, it's been lovely to chat. <laughs> <laughs> Not early here. Half, halfway around the world. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Well, I don't know how you're feeling after that conversation, but I am so excited to have been able to speak with Dr. Reed. And as we head into today's episode roundup, I really want to end focusing on the first two words in the title of Dr. Reed's book, Reclaiming Birth. What does that mean to you to reclaim birth? The honest truth is that this momentous event, this life-altering rite of passage, has indeed been stolen from mothers. Generations of women didn't even realize this, and many in my own generation still do not see that their power to be a decision-maker in their own birthing experience has been removed. But now there's such easier access to information. Now we can look back. We can see the atrocities of the medical system in regards to birth and choose something different. We can choose to be in charge of our care, in charge of our birthing experiences, in charge of our motherhood. I want to thank Dr. Reed for adding to the evidence with her continued work. Okay, my friends, that's all I've got for you today, and I'll see you back here next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Are you looking to extend the home birth support, encouragement, and education? Join us in our Facebook group, Happy Home Birth Podcast Community, and check us out on Instagram at Happy Home Birth Podcast.